Good morning. I've said this at the beginning of each of the past couple lessons. I'll continue through this series. This is a series on practical Christianity. How do you, how do, you do the Christian life? How do you live it out? The point that I want to reiterate at the beginning of each of these lessons is that our theology is only as valuable as our practice of it. If we esteem ideas, hold them into the clouds, say, this is a good idea. I like that idea. I prefer this idea over these other ideas over there. And yet, those ideas remain in the clouds. They don't affect our footsteps. They don't affect our hands. Is it any good? Is it of any value at all? As I look around the evangelical world broadly, this has been for decades, maybe even longer. There are truths that we esteem, and they are true. Namely, truths of the gospel. Truths that Jesus is the reigning king. Truths that there is an eternal life waiting for Christians beyond this life. We even esteem the idea that Christians should live differently than the world. You say, Christians should be sanctified. We should be set apart. There should be a difference in our conduct and our behavior. And yet there's an impasse oftentimes in that we know the call and how to go do it. We're lost on that. And so I want this to be a time where as a church family, we develop a theology of practice. As I think about the Christian walk, there, there are so many elements to it. You can think about our hope that is laid up above. You can think about what Jesus Christ did at the cross for us. His atonement, the redemption that we have through his blood, our faith in him. You can think about all these things, but when I think about what it means to be a Christian, just read through the Bible. The people of God lived differently. The people of God put away the things that they once saw as valuable. There were things that they once were that they no longer are. Paul, in this long list of sins in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Such were some of you, but you have been washed. You have been sanctified. That is, you were set apart. And the idea is that there is no longer a continuation in them. So what is it that happened between the old man and the new man? Aside from the work of Jesus at Calvary and the grace of God that covers me when I do stumble, what is it that happens practically between the old me and the new me and what I'm being called to do and be as a Christian? That's what this lesson is about. I want for you to have your Christian workbench, whereas you're thinking about, here's, my, here's the sin in my life. I'm to crucify it. I, I'm, we are not to continue in sin so that grace may abound. Paul said, in fact, may it never be. There's a different way. We are called to a higher standard. And as Christians, I want for you to have a workbench in front of you where you can grab a tool needed for this. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about how to conquer anxiety. There's a way to do it. How to conquer depression. There is a way to do it. The Bible doesn't just call us to things. It actually tells us how to do it. And if we're to crucify the sin in our lives, how should we do it? Well, I hope that you'll find this 
to be very practical. I want to start broadly with some big theology and then work down to some very specific things. The passage that I have in mind is Galatians chapter 5. Just look at this. Let this steep in your minds. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of angers, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. It's a big passage, and there's a lot in there, but there's two things I want you to see before we move on. The first is, Paul, he gives this list. It's, in, it's verses 19 through 21, this list of the works of the flesh. Now, he tells us that th- you know, things like these, he, which tells us this isn't an exhaustive list. Your, your sin may not have come up in this list. He says there's also things like these, anything related to these in any, in any sense. He says there's, there's those, that, that's a reality. And then notice what he says. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That, there's the gravity of it. As a Christian, I'm longing for glory. I think of it all the time. I think of the day where I stand face to face with my Savior. I want to hear him say, well done, more than I want anything else in the world. More than, far more than I want the approval of men. Or I certainly would speak in a much different way. I want to be approved of God. I want to be in eternity in a good place. We're all going there. This is about that. It's about inheriting the kingdom of God that will outshine the sun. It's about being in glory forever in paradise forever with the living God and with the saints who loved him and walked faithfully don't you want to be there I want to be there more than anything else on the planet this is what's at stake here when he speaks of these sins in the world and sins in our lives he says those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God so that gets my attention but it doesn't get my attention in a negative way where i think, well, I guess it's all hope is lost. I, I mean, sin is hard to conquer, isn't it? Those who have been Christians for 50 years can say it's still a struggle. But when I read this passage, I don't get hopeless because of the things that Paul says. Notice this. First of all, in verse 24, 
He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. By virtue of him saying that they have crucified, he's speaking of people that have done it. It's not like God said, hey, go do this, and by the way, it's an impossibility. Nobody's ever done it. You'll never be able to do it. He says, in fact, those that belong to Christ, they have done it, which tells me it can be done. And then it gets even more specific in the prior verses where he says this. He says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So Paul's saying there's a way to do this. There is a way to conquer the flesh. The hopeless Christian that's been a Christian for 20 years and is still doing the very things that he did on the day after his baptism What's going on there? There is a way to be perpetually sanctified and the old man is removed and the new man is created and it informs and it it changes everything in my conduct and in your conduct. So I want to talk about how that works. That's really what this text is about. And I want you to know practically what can you do? How do you go out in the midst of temptation and be able to grab a tool off of your workbench and put it to use? That's what this is about. So, look at this. Paul tells us, he tells us how this works. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and let me just highlight this again. Walk by the Spirit, and the result is, the result of doing what he just said, which we're going to talk about in a minute, is you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And this doesn't necessarily come through in, in my translation, maybe it does in yours, but this phrase, you will not, the way that he structures this in Greek, it's all, it's, it's emphatic. And one way that you could translate it is, you will by no means gratify the desires of the flesh. This, he's not speaking in any uncertain terms. There is no gray area here. He's not saying, you'll kind of not, he says you won't. If, if the preceding measure has been met, then the following result will be true. That's a, that's a propositional fact. Now, if you're like me, I'm a, I'm a curious reader. Whenever I come across something like that, especially something as, as big as a statement as that, you mean that it's possible to not gratify the desires of the flesh that hound me every day? You mean that that temptation that comes knocking on my door, there's a way that I can actually quell it and overcome it and not give in to it and actually move beyond it, having not sinned and look forward to the future. That's what he says. And my question to Paul and the Holy Spirit is, how is that so? How can this be? Paul anticipates the question. Notice that really small word at the beginning of verse 17. For... Here's, and, and that, that word means because. He's answering the question that you have. Every Christian who's lived the Christian walk for any period of time is saying, how do I overcome it? He says, walk by the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. The question is, how can this be? Why would it be true that that's the case? He says, because. And the reason that he gives is the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. 
the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So the spirit of the living God and the flesh that is within me, it's not just talking about my biology. It's not just talking about the atoms that makes up my person. That's a Gnostic idea. It's a, it was a Gnostic idea that the flesh itself, that the physical body itself was somehow inherently corrupted. That's not what this means. In Paul's theology, the flesh is something that goes to the core of a person. It's actually the things that are somewhat transcendent. And it has to do with the way that the man is on the inside, what he's thinking about, what informs his actions, what informs his thinking primarily. And Paul says the fleshly man, the things of the world, the temporal man, those things, he says, are in opposition to the things of the Spirit. The reason why, if you walk by the Spirit, that you will not gratify the desires of the flesh is these two things are diametrically opposed. You remember when you were a kid having a couple of magnets, and you remember taking the magnets and reversing the poles, and then you put one magnet against another magnet, and what happens? You could scoot it across the table. You could make it push away from the other because they were, the poles were reversed. This is precisely what Paul is saying is the case with the Holy Spirit of God and the things pertaining to him and the things pertaining to the fleshly man, the worldly man, the corrupted man, the things that are of the world. They are opposed like magnets with their poles reversed. You can't, no matter how hard you try, you cannot make a magnet with its pole reverse stick to another magnet. They're going to push against each other constantly. And that's precisely the way that it works in the spiritual realm with the things of God. If I'm, if I'm deep in the things of the Spirit of God, it informs me in such a way that it keeps me from doing the things of the flesh. Now, the other question is, how do I do that? Paul, as I read through Galatians chapter 5, Paul says walk by the Spirit. He says, be led by the Spirit. He says, live by the Spirit. He says, keep in step with the Spirit. And yet my curiosity is not quite satisfied. I can understand, in theory, how walking by the Spirit would prevent me from gratifying the things of the flesh, but my next question is, how do I walk by the Spirit? Don't you have that question? What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? And that's where you just ask the question. Well, Paul, what do you mean? And you can search through the rest of Paul's literature because Paul speaks like Paul everywhere that Paul talks. Paul's writings are a commentary on Paul's writings. If you have a question for the Apostle Paul, oftentimes you can get the answer immediately in the context where he's speaking. But if you can't get the answer immediately there, you can probably find the answer in one of his other writings. Paul, when he's writing to the Galatians, he seems to be writing from a standpoint where he assumes that they would know what walking by the Spirit is. Well, it's 2020. Is it 2023 or 4 now? 24. It's like, like I'm forgetting my age now as well. Uh, it's 2024. I'm not the original audience. I was not privy to Paul's teachings 
face to face. There were things that he'd said and that they knew that was just assumed that it was common knowledge. I don't have that now, so I need a commentary. What do you mean by living by the Spirit? Well, let me give you what Paul says in uh, his commentary on that passage, which he wrote this to the Romans. Apparently, they didn't know as much as the Galatians, and I would think that that was because Paul had never been to Rome. Look at what he says. Paul speaks to what he means, living by the Spirit. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Notice he's, he's talking all about the flesh. Sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then what's the last thing that he says? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Does that sound similar to what he was talking about in Galatians 5? Walk by the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Well, here he speaks of the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us. That is, we are living out in a much fuller degree the things that God has for us by way of his standards than we were before. And he says the key to it is those that are walking by the, by the Spirit, not those that are walking by the flesh. Now look at, how, look at his commentary on what that means. Here's how he goes on. He says, For those who live according to the flesh... Set their minds on the things of the flesh. Do you see that? Those that are living according to the flesh. When I, when I was brand new Christian. And it seems, that, it seems that sin just goes deeper and deeper into a, a person. Or maybe it's that the sin was that deep all along. But the longer you're a Christian, the more introspective you become. And the outward things change as I understand things differently internally. But when I was first a Christian, it seemed that most of the sins I was struggling with were just outward physical things. My question is always, why is it? Why do I keep tripping up in these areas? Why do I, why do I keep doing the same thing? I know it's bad. I know it's wrong. God says don't do it. My mom and dad said don't do it. I even in my own self say, Daniel, don't do it. And I'm continuing to do the very same things that I know that I ought not do. Paul talked about the struggle in Romans chapter 7, and he actually gives the answer in Romans chapter 8. And he says that what's happening is those that are living according to the flesh, doing the fleshly things that they ought not do, where is their mind? Their mind is on the things of the flesh. But those, notice this, those who live according to the Spirit, what do they do? Set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And don't forget, this is Paul speaking back here about walking. This is how we walk. This is a commentary. How do I walk according to the Spirit? Well, it has a whole lot to do with what I'm doing in my mind. Where do I put my mind? What am I thinking about? And the important question there is, what is it that's informing my thinking? Where am I putting myself? What kinds of environments do I find myself in? What things do I watch? What things do I listen to? What kinds of people am I around? How do those things inform the way that I think? And how does my thinking inform the way that I walk? Do you see? 
Paul says those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For, notice how he keeps speaking to this, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. Isn't that what he said over in Galatians? Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. You remember in Galatians where he talked about these two things are opposed to one another, they're against one another, they're enemies of one another. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, and therefore the result is it can't submit. My question as a young man is why can't I submit to the living God? Why do I do the very thing I do not want to do? And as I look at Paul, and I see the things that he says, and then I reflect back over the life that I lived. It has a whole lot to do with the things I was doing in my mind. Where was my mind? You want to conquer sin. Where's your mind? What do you put in your mind? I had a job first thing out of my first, my first year of college, my summer job. I think I even told you all about this. Where all summer long I was with bunch of ex, uh, ex-felons. The language was very, very colorful in the environment where I worked. Never in my life had I had a temptation to use any kind of profanity. At the end of a summer of working 12-hour shifts through the night, five days a week, when I stubbed my toe or when I got upset, the first things that came to mind, do you know what they were? I won't repeat them in the pulpit. Never in my life had I been tempted in that respect. And yet after hearing it and being in that environment for this long, there it was. What does Paul mean when he says, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals? What kind of company do you keep? What things do you look at? What things do you listen to? What are you immersed in? So often we attack sin while living in the sinful environment expecting it will leave. Paul's saying, where's your mind? And the the bigger question is, what is it that's informing my mind? What am I thinking about? I have to have a mind of the Spirit. And so, let's take a couple of these for the next 10 minutes, and I want to show you practically every day what does it look like to have a mind of the Spirit that would quell the gratification of the flesh. So so specifically, just really specific. The first thing we're going to do is I'm going to take these, I'm going to lump these three together. Um, Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality. Now these are related. There are nuanced differences. The the way in which they're related is they have to do with the gut. They have to do with a person who's guided by their gut. The person who, when they haven't had a good meal, they're going to get angry at you. We call it hangry. We have little terms that we come up with, but this this is people that are guided by the gut. They're guided by the flesh. Sensuality means the senses. That's what it has to do with. But we're going to take the very first one because these are, these are really, um, I'm going to lump these together as kind of one idea. And, and, I, and I want to show you because if we're being real, if we don't talk about these things in the pulpit, where are people going to learn them? Sexual temptation is probably more prevalent than any other temptation that exists. And the enemy's doing a very good job with it because he plasters anything related to sex all over everything. It's in the media. It's on a billboard as you drive down the highway. It's on a million different advertisements. It's all over social media. 
It's everywhere. It's in the conversation. It's in the comedian's routine. It's in the movie. They just throw a scene in there for absolutely no purpose. It has nothing to do with the plot, but there it is. These things are everywhere. I want for you to have tools in the moment of temptation to know how to combat it. I'm a Christian. I don't live the way that I once did. And that thing will always appeal to the flesh by virtue of me being made a sexual being, which is a good thing in itself. It's a good thing in its own right. And yet the enemy will do everything he can to twist it and pervert it and take it out of its proper context. So what do you do? Well, here's what you do. You have a mind of the spirit in the hour of temptation. And by the way, developing a mind of the spirit is a long process. And it's a constant process. It's an immersive process. It's developing a new way of thinking. It's developing a new way of seeing the world. This is for people that are serious. This is for people that see what Paul says there in Galatians chapter 5, that those who do such things won't inherit the kingdom of God. And so they don't deal with it as trite or trivial. They don't deal with it as something, I'm going to put it on the back burner and deal with it later in life. These are people who say, I want to deal with it right now. What should I do? Because my eternity is at stake. What they do is they immerse their minds in a place of the Spirit. They get into Scripture. They allow the things of God to inform the way they see the world. They allow the promises of God to inform their, the, the cost-benefit. Is the cost here worth the benefit of it? A few minutes of gratification, weeks of heartache and uh, difficulty after the fact, maybe even longer. Eternity, if Satan has his say. Is the cost there? Is the cost worth the benefit? And I want you to see this. So we're going to, this is a, just an object lesson. Look at the life of Joseph. Never was anything bad ever said about Joseph. This was a righteous man who kept being dealt a bad hand, but it was by the providence of God that it happened, and it brought him to where he ultimately was. But Joseph said, it says this of Joseph, after a time, now young men, I'm speaking to you. Joseph was a young man. He was not a married man. And the temptation before you're married is, perhaps greater than it is after you're married, though it doesn't go away after you're married. But if you're a young man and this temptation to sexual immorality is there, look at Joseph, learn from him. This is a good man to look on and say, I want to be like him. What was it that was going on in the mind of Joseph? After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But notice this, he refused. How did you do it, Joseph? No one was there but you and her. And she, it says in the text that she actually pursued him day after day after day, and never once did he fall for this. What was he doing? What, what was informing? Well, he had a mind of the Spirit. Because if you have a mind of the Spirit and walk by the Spirit and are led by the Spirit, you won't fulfill the gratifications of the flesh. You won't gratify the flesh. Notice what he says. This was his words. He says to her, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? There are a few things, there are four things that I see that Joseph had in his mind prior to this moment. The first thing was Joseph was more concerned for his neighbor than he was for himself. Notice this. He refused, and notice the first thing that he speaks of is my master. 
he didn't first think of himself and what this would mean for him in that moment. The first thought was, my master, and all through here, he uses his, he, he references him. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are, and this is the kicker, you are his wife. Here's a young unmarried man who saw that woman and he didn't see her as an opportunity for personal pleasure. He saw this as an opportunity. He said, that's my neighbor. That's Potiphar's wife. That's his wife. That's the mind of the spirit. And we have to develop that prior to the moment to where in the moment you think, this doesn't belong to me. This belongs to that person over there. But not only did he consider his neighbor, he also considered his own status and he considered the blessings that he had. He, he says, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. A mind of the Spirit in the moment thinks about the responsibility and really what's at stake. I have, I have all of this authority here. All of this is, is in my grip how will I use this influence that I have? He considered his own status and the blessings therein. Joseph considered the immorality of adultery. Notice this. How then can I do this great wickedness? Notice he, he wasn't thinking. The enemy is going to do everything he can to keep us from seeing what's really there. Give a shiny package. Don't look on the inside of it. Don't consider what's really at stake here. That's what he'll do. But Joseph saw right to the heart. He says, this is great wickedness. It's not a moment of pleasure for me. And then the big one is, he says, and how can I, what does he say? Sin against God. I heard somebody one time give a lesson on practical atheism. We believe in God everywhere that we are except for the hour of temptation. In the hour of temptation, all of a sudden, God's gone. I don't see him. I don't hear him. But in this hour, he, was so, he had such a godly worldview that he knew God's here. And God has done so much for me. I will give him my allegiance. I will obey him. That's a mind of the spirit. And I have so much more to say, but I realize that we're out of time. Next Sunday night, it's not going to be the next Sunday morning, but next Sunday night, I'm going to walk through more of these there's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. All, I'm going to just walk through these and give tools. What do you do in this moment? How do you overcome the temptation to be divisive or to cause strife? How do you overcome, overcome the temptation for conceit? We, we, we can be people who have a practical theology. God has given us the tools. If you will walk by the Spirit meaning you put your mind on the things of the Spirit, meaning you let your mind be informed by the things of the Spirit, namely Scripture and all the things that come with fellowship, we will not be people that gratify the desires of the flesh. And therefore, we will be people who are ready for the return of our King and our God. If you have any need at all, if you need the prayers of the church, if you need to put on Christ in baptism, this is an opportunity to let that be known while we stand and while we sing.